Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All the Things podcast, episode number 19, Front-End Developer Roadmap. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. What have you been up to this week, Mike? Yeah, hey, Matt. Uh, so this week has been, again, tons of work on Hat the Hat website, so uh, hopefully you've had a chance to take a look at that uh, if you're listening to this episode a little bit later. Um, yeah, we put a lot of work into that and it should be, you know, an evolving project as we go. So there are definitely going to be some changes, but it's definitely going to be pretty cool to see it up and live for people to actually use. Um, but we'll have a whole segment on that. So I'm not going to get too far into it. Other than that, I was, uh, just traveling actually in the United States, uh, just going to see, uh, my younger cousin play some NCAA hockey. I uh, did some work while I was traveling, always like kind of like working in hotels sometimes, change of scenery, stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, that was my week. What about you, Matt? Um, so uh, I guess I guess this is the time for uh, a disclaimer. This is a pre-recorded episode. Uh, we realized and this is I guess this basically sums up our very, very busy week is we realized about halfway through the week that um, I'm on vacation for a week and a half and we pre-recorded the last episode, as we said. But then we realized, oh, I'm leaving on the day of the episode. So there's two episodes that I'd be missing because I'm away for the week and a half. So uh, we rushed this one out. So this is also a pre-recorded episode. So like Mike said, we've been working hard on the HTML All The Things website. So it may be in a different status than what we than what you see, uh, like what we're going to be talking about. So maybe you should go and like check out the actual website. Um, so that that was a big part. And then I was also tying up a whole bunch of loose ends this week you know, notifying customers that we work with, uh, repeatedly and like constantly that I am leaving for a week. And so that, you know, that's a, you know, a standard business practice, but very important that you kind of let your customers know, like, Hey, I'm leaving, send me, you know, I'm going to be doing all these updates on this day. So let me, you know, send everything by that day and then I'll get to it kind of thing. So that, that, that's today, actually the day that we're recording this and tying up all the loose ends, including recording this podcast. So very busy last, I'm going to say probably three weeks for both of us. Um, so yeah, it's been a it's been a pretty crazy experience. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce the show because this show is also a little bit different. So normally we have a bunch of segments and we do have three segments plus web news, but the main segment is going to be a little bit different. So we'll be covering a document that Mike found on GitHub uh, called the Front End Developer Roadmap, and it covers a learning roadmap of skills to uh, skills and tools um, as well as more so just literally a roadmap like you don't know anything and you just want to jump right in you know it goes right from the very beginning throughout the continue learning or keep exploring part of one's career where you're like okay I've learned one of each thing I'm just going to keep getting better and honing my skill so there is quite a bit of information on the document and we'll be hitting the main points only and we'll be paraphrasing here and there adding our own opinions throughout so and not covering everything, because I said there's quite a bit of information in there. So make sure that you actually check out the show notes uh, where the link to the actual article is there. Um, the person that actually is that that runs the, the GitHub page is uh, Cameron Ahmed. So just a bit of a shout out to him, because uh, Mike found this. And it's quite an interesting document. And he has more documents for more than just front end as well. So maybe something we'll cover in future episodes. 
So segment number one is going to be our roadmap discussion as I just went on about. Segment number two is going to be an update on the HTML All the Things website. And then segment number three is going to be web news. And this was actually a web news that was suggested to us on Instagram via DM. And it's uh, Microsoft Office versus Google Docs. And it's talking about those two Office suites. So that one should be an interesting and uh, probably a heated conversation, I'm sure. <laughs> as we As we always do Microsoft versus Google here. But... Let's jump right in, I think, to the roadmap discussion, because there are quite a bit of points. I think there's around 18 or 20 points here. So I'm going to kind of start right here, start at the beginning. So um, for the for the listener, just a real brief mention of what this document is. So right at the top, top of the document, it's learn the basics, and it's kind of like a timeline of sorts, where you kind of go through and there's main numbered points with a whole bunch of notes here and there of what you should be doing and, you know, quick quick facts and that type of thing, like a whole bunch of little things you should know. So you, as you progress down the document, you get to the keep exploring page. And that's, like I said, that's okay. I've learned one of everything and I, and you know, I should just kind of keep honing my skill and learning more, but I've learned mostly everything in the specifically the quote unquote front end uh, part of this industry. So segment or a point, I should say point number one, two, and three are the basics. So learn HTML, uh, learn the basics of CSS, learn the basics of JavaScript. And and with that comes things like, you know, learn how to use Flexbox and Grid, do media queries and responsive websites. That's part of your CSS. Um, learn the basics of how to write semantic HTML, you know, dividing the page into sections and how to structure the DOM properly, make at least five HTML pages, focus on structure, and don't worry about making them pretty yet. And then you'll use those CSS skills that I just mentioned to make it pretty. And then, of course, the basics of JavaScript. So learn the syntax and basic constructs and learn how to manipulate the DOM, understand the concepts uh, such as hoisting, event bubbling, prototype, etc. Learn fetch API, learn ES6+, new features, and writing modular JavaScript. JavaScript. So he has them listed uh, in order of learn uh, as learn HTML, learn the or basics of JavaScript or sorry, basics of CSS and then basics of JavaScript. But for us, our experience was it was kind of a meld. It was kind of everything all at once. So we kind of our personal experience, we kind of jumped into the goal of number four, which is make some responsive website and add some interactivity with JavaScript. So when Mike and I first started out, we basically said, we want to make sure that all of our customers get responsive websites right out of the gate. We don't want any mobile site stuff. Cause I think we've mentioned in previous episodes, when we first started mobile websites, like the separate mobile website was still like a rather popular thing. And there was so kind of people on the fence, right? Like, Oh, just make a mobile website. Why would you make it responsive? So we said, no, we want one website. We want it to be right. You know, just done you know, quote unquote correctly, we want to make sure that it's one design that, that moves around and make sure it fits on most screen sizes. So we jump essentially right to number four and then we melded number one, two, and three. So that's kind of why I like mix those ones up there, right? So it's like, it's like we just kind of like learned and learned each little bit. Now this structure that's actually on the document is probably a really good structure for someone who's never programmed before. Uh, somebody who, you know, cause the HTML is sort of known as being, you know, rather simple. CSS can be simple and gets complex. And then JavaScript, again, 
can take you from really simple to very complex. So learning them one, two, three is a probably a good idea. But if you're already jumped in, this is why I mentioned this. If you've already jumped in and you're kind of, you know, already all, all mixed around in those three, in those four, that's rather normal. I would say that that was our experience. We just sort of dove into a project and was like, Oh, we need to learn a little bit of HTML today. Oh, the CSS is, you know, we need to learn how to make this heading bigger or what have you. Oh, this, you know, I need to make this disappear. Sometimes we need a little bit of JavaScript, et cetera, et cetera. So. That's sort of, that's sort of our experience. And, and that's sort of the beginning of the roadmap. And the big, probably the beginning of everyone's thing is, you know, you probably are Googling how to make a website. And this is exactly uh, the type of things that you'll be learning and the type of things that you'll be going through. Now, number five is something sort of an interesting one. And it's something we have never done. We've absolutely talked about it. We've absolutely looked into it. And we've had, I think, actually in depth conversations a few years ago regarding this. So number five on this roadmap is search projects on GitHub and open a few PRs. Some of the ideas are listed below. So I'm just going to list out the ideas here. So enhance the UI, make any demo pages responsive or improve the design. Look for any open issues that you can solve. Refactor any of the code or implement the best practices that you learned along the way. So that's actually something that we did a decent amount of research on. I remember jumping into Medium for the first time as a part of a writing project, seeing a bunch of developer pages, and was I sort of jumped into a couple. And a few of the articles I was reading was guide, typically guides or just, you know, commenting on the fact that people were, were contributing to open source projects and, you know, contributing to these, these open or these uh, GitHub repos. That is something we've never formally done, and we have personally... Uh, kind of moved it over. So we, we, we put, pushed that over and we started making our own thing. So this is sort of at step five, our, of our journey was sort of, we started doing things like list by design, doing a few extensions here, here and there for Google Chrome. We did like a couple of Chrome apps. We started making sites for ourselves. So things like free photos, Hamilton, those type of things. So we kind of like, we still kind of did quote unquote repos or like projects, but we just never contributed to other people. We just kind of dove right in and just sort of make sort of making them ourselves and that's sort of that's sort of kind of a a general consensus of how we do things i think and uh you know, I, I don't think it's unique to us, but some people maybe wouldn't want to learn it this way. But like I said, with number four, we just dove in and said we're making responsive websites. And then we melded points one through four there. With this one, it's like, oh, I could contribute to, to this guy's project or I could just make my own. So Mike and I are kind of more of the guys that will just kind of like have a goal and we'll just kind of like dive right in and try to hit it and try to get it done as fast or as not as, I shouldn't say as fast, but we'll try to like hit that goal. We won't try to like meander and go around, but there's absolutely no problem with, with contributing to other people's things. And to be honest, it is something that we're still actively looking into and would be an interesting experience because we do not have that formal experience. Um, so number six, so number six on the document is give yourself a pat on the back. You're getting there. And I'm just going to read this, this little point here as well. So there are many jobs out there requiring uh, the skill set that you have gotten till this point. So that would be just a recap, learn HTML, basics of CSS, basics of JavaScript, make some responsive website and add interactivity with JavaScript. And then the GitHub stuff that I just mentioned. And to continue my point there, you can easily start getting some freelance work or find yourself a job if you may. However, don't stop here. There's still a long way to go. If you want to have a better career. And this is a really key point, I think, that is really important. So when, when Mike first sent this to me, I think it was yesterday or the day before, I looked at it and I was like, oh, Nelly, like there's a lot of stuff in here. And I'm sure that we've touched on all or most of it. 
But there's some stuff that I'm sure, especially like little intricate points where it's like I've done it once or I have never needed it. So I've never touched it and I've never like gone after it, that type of thing. So like for me, it's like my journey and Mike's journey too, admittedly, and we'll be getting into this later on, is that like we're still learning, we're still going, but we're doing this professionally and we've been doing this professionally for a number of years now. So and and we're only on number six here. And like I said, there's 18 or 20 points in this. And you can, in the, as it's been stated, rather, um, you can already get a job at this point. So I think it's really, really key to note that if you go and look at this document, it looks really like, oh, you know, like, oh, my God, like what's going on here? But it is a gradual path. And each one of these points, each one of these skills, each one of these parts are very valuable as a skill that you can acquire. And it's absolutely a skill that you can sell. And you don't need to know absolutely everything to start making money, to have, to get a job, um, especially like something like in a startup or in a um, junior web developer or, or developer position. You know, absolutely, you don't need to know all 18 or all 20 points uh, for this. You can just simply... You can just simply like, you know, get a bunch of skills, learn how to do a bunch of stuff, and then you could try and like sell those, essentially, quote unquote, sell those skills to employers or maybe to freelance clients, whichever you'd prefer. So I think the next one, I think Mike's going to take over for number seven here. Uh, yeah, Matt, uh, sounds good. So I just wanted to add to the number five point where <clears throat> we didn't do any, uh, where you mentioned that we didn't do any like, you know, uh, collaboration with uh, GitHub and that with other people i think that was because we were kind of fortunate in being able to have projects to work on for actually like paid projects to work on right away so we weren't forced to kind of go in and try to find stuff to contribute to find stuff to uh to do uh without that so because we had that income coming in we could kind of uh you know use that income even though it was really small to live and then you know use the rest of our time to kind of expand our skills on our own and that's i think that was one of the major reasons that we chose to do our own projects instead of uh contributing to other people's i uh, just wanted to mention that i don't know might be important for some people to know why we why we chose not to uh contribute um and like you said there's definitely i, I definitely plan on doing contributions at some point uh when i when i feel like it'd be you know when I feel like my skills would be usable for other people's uh, projects. Um, so well, I'm just gonna, one, one, yeah, one point there, actually, just, mm -hmm. just based on your point, which I think is actually important. It's a good thing you brought this up is that I think a lot of it had to do with our motivation. I think you and I are probably more motivated to work on a project that we are fully invested in. And mm -hmm. I think that that like, I mean, different motivations, you know, affect different people. Some people really want to contribute to the community. Some people really want to, some people are motivated to learn this entire document just because they have an idea that they don't want to hire a developer for and they want to learn it themselves. So I think that one's motivation is really um, one of those key points that would drive you through a document like this, through a career path like this. So it's just like, like that's a, that's an interesting point or something that you brought up that's really important is, you know, if you really don't, I don't want to use the word don't care, but like if you really don't care about contributing to someone else's repo you absolutely don't necessarily have to if you do that's great and like even we said like we're willing to and we're looking into doing it at some point but for us i think a motivator is like let's let's start this let's let's kickstart this let's do this for us and then we'll have a project done that we did so uh, just just something to something to note there yeah for sure i agree with that um so let's just move on to the next point so number seven uh is package managers so um we did 
we kind of went slowly into this, I think. Like, I think a lot of people would have went, like, head first, but uh, we were a little bit resilient to uh, to use package managers. I'm not really sure why, but maybe it's just because we were so used to doing it the old-fashioned way of just, you know, downloading the, the package, uh, putting a script tag in your HTML file, and that's it. Uh, but package managers are actually really useful, and we've definitely been using them very, very consistently, maybe over the past year or maybe two even, uh, where especially with like a Node.js application uh, and especially when you start getting into stuff like Vue, uh, stuff like that, package managers are hugely beneficial and they, they will save you a ton of time. So what, what I mean by package managers is NPM, uh, so the Node package managers. There's also another one which I haven't had much experience with. I think I've used it only once and uh, there's not much difference as far as I could see, but uh, there's another one called Yarn. So whichever one you want to learn, I think it doesn't matter. You kind of just learn one. The other one is simple to use if, if you want. Uh, I'm not really sure what the differences are or the benefits or neg- uh, negatives of each. But yeah, pretty much uh, like package managers allow you to kind of keep your packages up to date easier too, which, because you can um, you can have a package file where you, you put all the packages that you use in kind of like a JSON format. And inside that JSON format, you can say like, I want to use this package and I want it to, you know, either stay at this exact version or I want it to stay at uh, download at least this minimum version of this package and then update it as you go. Um, each has their benefits and negatives. I think on a production application, when you have something that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of thousands of people are using, you want to, you know, find a version that works, stick to that version, put in just the version number that you, that you're comfortable with. And then when you go and migrate, uh, to a new version, you want to do that on a demo server, just if everything works as planned and then migrate that. So you want to keep it kind of static, the pack, the, the versioning and on a, uh, and on maybe like a you know a, your personal project, it doesn't matter because like you're you want to just see the newest versions of everything, and you want to make sure that you can you know adapt to a newer version of a package, so you can keep it more flexible. So it gives you that kind of a opportunity, and you don't have to go in and you know go into the website, install the package, put it into a folder called library, and then import, and then uh, just like manually you know put put the package into a script tag. You can uh, w- with a package manager as well as um, Maybe a tool like Webpack, which we'll be talking about later. Uh, you can kind of get it all into one into one file and have it really simple of just be typing in npm install. It'll look at your package.json file and it'll install the correct packages for you, import them into the correct spots, and you're good to go. You'll just have to use some imports here and there wherever you use those packages. It's a really, I I think it's a very crucial tool to learn. Uh, I think it's it's smart that um, on this roadmap it's it's pretty early on because i think it really builds upon like you build upon it as you go down the roadmap and we'll be talking about it more uh but it's cool that they put it so early i would say with our experience we definitely learned it a little bit later uh in in the roadmap so that that's just how we approached it but i would still recommend uh to follow this roadmap for this specific point uh so the next one is install some external dependencies in your application. So actually use that package manager to get a package and then install it into your application with uh, import. Or again, you can do it the old-fashioned way of just putting it into a script tag uh, and just you know referencing the you know the CSS of that package or the HTML or the JS of that package. I'm sure you're familiar with how to import a, an actual external dependency. So. Stuff that we first did with external dependencies, I would say, is probably Owl Carousel, 
Um, Matt can probably back me up on this one, but we we were trying to find something that would do like a slider, or like an effective slider, and we kind of looked through all the packages out there, and we saw our carousel, so we decided to use it, and it, it served us pretty well for a long time. Now, I'm not a huge fan of sliders anymore. When we first started out, they were really popular. Now, I would say that they're less popular, and probably for good reason. Uh, people, in my opinion, or it, from what we've seen, is they don't stay on the page long enough to see multiple slides. So you're kind of wasting that real estate in the back there. You're wasting the performance. There's no point to have it. It's better to have it either lower in the page or just kind of incorporate everything into one slide if you can. Uh, or one like cover photo if you can. I think it's a more con- concise and a better way to show information instead of making the user either have to scroll through the, the slides or have to wait if it's on a time thing for the next slide to show up. Um so that we, we we use some like we use our care. So the other thing that we still use quite often is Lightbox, uh, and this one is uh, Lightbox by uh, Lokesh Dakar, and I think it's a fairly popular uh, library, a fairly popular external dependency. Um, it's just a really simple, like very lightweight Lightbox, which is just pretty much something that will kind of allow you to make a photo gallery where you can click on a photo and it'll pop up kind of in a what, what's called a Lightbox, right? Right, and it won't take up the whole screen, but it'll take up a larger portion, and you can click through the rest of your gallery, or you can click around it to to exit out of it, or you can click on the X to exit out of it and go back to your page. So that's what a light box is. We use that uh, initially too. So these these two, I'm just going to bring up like a couple of examples because there's you know hundreds and thousands and millions of libraries out there right now. But I'm just saying these are the, probably the first two that we used. Um, Maybe Font Awesome would be one of them as well. That 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 would be considered an external dependency. So it's definitely something we used a lot and uh, we still use sometimes. Um, but yeah, so I think with with where you're learning this, um, I think it's a good idea. I think I we we kind of incorporated into our uh, probably first three to learn the basics. So learn HTML, basics of CSS, and basics of JavaScript. I think we started using libraries right there. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, uh, but that's pretty much where we like, we immediately went like, oh, we don't want to build our own slider. So why don't we look for something that exists? And we kind of imported it in, uh, the custom, you know, the, the static way and used it right away. We didn't kind of, we didn't fall. I wouldn't say we followed this, um, completely with stuff like that. We didn't use a lot of packages where as, as you probably know, we're, we're very into the vanilla coding, uh, if we don't need a package, we definitely would prefer to code it ourselves, especially if we're if we're only going to use one little portion of a package. I like to kind of uh, spend a little bit of time and code it myself to make it more like performance, uh, a, a better a better performance for the user instead of having to you know import a massive package just to use one little feature from it. But other than that, we did use some packages when we were starting out in a little bit of a different order in this roadmap. Uh, but it's definitely a good idea to learn package managers and then actually install those packages using the package managers. Kind of hit two birds with one stone and you don't have to go in and mess around with the f- actual folders and stuff like that. Um, but that's that's about it for uh, point seven and 8. I'm going to pass it off to Matt uh, to have any comments or and to talk about the next uh, few points as well. Yeah, so one thing I just I just wanted to comment, and this is more of a personal thing, maybe, um, but it might help some of you. Is one of the things I uh, that I when I was very, when I was learning npm uh, was that I kind of got like scared because it was like Node.js, and I didn't know what that was. Uh, this is like maybe a couple years ago now, and I was like, oh man, I don't know about these packages. Like I don't know what they are. Like I didn't really understand what was going on. And what I equate it to, and what really helps me sort of think it, and I think it, I think it 
through like this now even today is i don't know and this this requires a very specific piece of experience like work experience so this is why i said it might be a personal story more than anything but i equate it to installing uh, applications and various like plugins or whatever you're doing on a linux machine on the command line so like apt get or something like that i equate like npm is basically doing that if you think about it because you can actually install things like you could install, and I'm about to talk about this in a minute, but you can install packages like SAS, which is a CSS preprocessor. You could install that, what's called globally, where you can then use like compiling with SAS anywhere in your command line. So I don't want to get like too, too technical to like, you know, because that's kind of really zooming in at that point and we're kind of going at a broad angle here. But just something to keep in mind is, is, you know, just just like how you're grabbing packages and install install files via command line with like as you would in a uh, in a, in a Linux terminal or in a Linux bash bash uh, command you that's basically what you're doing with npm and you can install it kind of per project or globally is how I've experienced it so just uh just something to keep in mind if you have any like administration experience that's kind of how I figured it out in my head uh, with that previous work experience. But moving on to point number nine here, CSS preprocessors. Like I've already mentioned, there's a couple of examples, SAS, post-CSS, less, stylus. And I'm just going to read the the blurb here. So preprocessors let you add functionality on top of CSS and let you do things that CSS can't. Have a look, uh, have, a, have a look at any of them and see what they have to offer and pick the suitable one. So he has a note here that says learn SAS for now. And I'm not going to read the whole pe- whole uh, point there, but I, out, out of those ones, uh, I've more or less heard of SAS post and uh, less stylus. Like it's kind of like I've heard it in passing, but like I couldn't, like if someone said it's stylus a CSS thing, I'd been like, I don't know. <laughs> um, but those other three, absolutely. Uh, I've heard of those and I've used SAS the most extensively. Uh, I think I used less once. But I've used SAS more extensively, and the biggest feature I can think of is, I think they call them mix-ins. I always forget terminology with these type of things for some reason, but I think I believe we call them mix-ins. But if you think about it, it's like, like what he said, they add functionality on top of CSS that you, like basically allow you to do things that CSS can't. A really big one is variables. So that that's kind of how I explain it to people if they ask. So it would be something like if you have a background color that's always standard across a site that's just red because that's the company's color and they always want that as the background of every page you can't in css just assign something to red like you could assign it to class like you could assign that hex code like whatever shade of red it is you could assign that hex code to a class but like that's starting to get messy and then you're calling red and you don't know whether you're calling the color or the background color or what you're doing so you can have just a straight up variable so you could you know constantly say in the various pages like background color and then actually have a variable there rather than constantly pasting the hex code so that way you just have like you can have like you you know various variables like secondary color primary color background color text color etc and then just use that throughout your css now that can be that can be um added into a bunch of other css pieces and complexities that i'm about to get into but that's that's sort of the main thing that i think of when i think of sas is oh i can now do variables and of course it's more powerful than that absolutely that's something for another day because that's a whole conversation on its own but something that is really interesting and i'm sure that as you advance if you're starting from the basics and from the very beginning something that you'll be like man i just wish i could get like i just i don't want to type this hex code anymore i don't want to remember it i don't want to copy it over anymore i don't want to copy paste it 
this is sort of where you're starting to get at and you're like starting starting to need a, a CSS preprocessor. So that that'll move us to point number 10 which is a CSS framework and it's so examples main examples here are Bootstrap, Materialize CSS and Bulma. Um of course we've talked about and used Bootstrap uh, on the show and in one of our templates that we have up for offer now. We have used Materialize actually. We've used Materialize before we started using Bootstrap. That was a number of years ago. We haven't used it since because we were interested in the Google material design uh, system. So CSS framework um and he even says here, so I'm just going to read the point that's within the roadmap. So you you really don't need to learn any, but still they are good to know, good to have. Sorry. So exactly what he said there, it is absolutely something that like some people when I mention, oh I've used Bootstrap or I've used this, they like, oh what the heck are you doing? And other people are like, oh yeah, I use Materialize all the time, or oh yeah, I use Bootstrap for you know my forms or whatever. Absolutely, it's this is sort of a more optional step. But what I kind of found it kind of helped me get into the the mindset i guess of more advanced css um i started using bootstrap and then bootstrap was like well if you want to edit this you have to use sass and that's what let that's what led me to sass and then i was like oh you can theme bootstrap this is how themes are made and this is i think this was a, like a year or so ago this is how themes are made and this is how people take bootstrap change all the default colors because if you use bootstrap in its most basic form most sites are going to look you know generally the same so it's like oh this is how this is like you know these guys on these on like theme forest or other other marketplaces this is how their thing is still a or their template is still a bootstrap template but it looks totally different than the default bootstrap it's because they're theming the bootstrap and they're using things like SAS and you know, whatever other tools these guys are using. But to, for me personally, that's what got me into this sort of more, because as you can tell, it's starting to get more advanced CSS, more advanced UI development. And so it might be something that you're interested in. And I was installing SAS with NPM. So like this, all this stuff starts to meld together and you don't necessarily have to do it in this order, but it's starting to really kind of meld together and it, it, it comes together. So I, the reason why I mentioned that is because this is going to sound really overwhelming. It's like, Jesus, I got to learn HTML, CSS, JS. I got to learn how to package this stuff. I got, no, no, no. It's not going to be all at once like that in any means. It's not like school where every day is a different math lesson. If you don't get it, you're, you're screwed. It's not like that at all. It's literally like you advance in CSS, like literally advance your skill in CSS. Then you're going to be like, man, I really want to just quickly do some of this stuff. So you're going to start using packages. Like Mike said, like owl carousel and whatever for sliders. Then you're going to be like, man, I really want, more advanced features in CSS, you're going to start using preprocessors. And then you're going to be like, you're also going to be like, man, I, I need to bang out this, 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 uh, this website for a client really quick. And then you're going to immediately go to something like bootstrap or materialize to quickly get a, a site spun up. So it's very important uh, that you realize that this is not as serious as one might think it is quite literally just, it's a natural progression through this. Um, this is just sort of a guide because there's a lot of advice out there all over the place. And this is just sort of a nice little, like I said, roadmap for this. Uh, and then number 11, number 11 here is uh, CSS architecture. So I'm just going to read the blurb here like I did before. Um, there are multiple ways to structure your CSS better and to make it more maintainable. You should know about the differences. And then personally, I myself use BEM more, and that's the author of this document writing that. So some of the suggestion ones or some of the suggested ones here are uh, BEM, OOCSS, SMACSS, uh, Suit CSS, and then Atomic. So full disclosure, I've never used these before. Um, I've heard of Atomic 
And that's it out of all three of these. Uh, slight bit of research that Mike and I did before the show. We looked at BEM and Atomic. And from what we gather, and again, I have not used this, so take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, please. But basically, it's like a method of you, of doing CSS. So it's 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 them, you know, naming classes a certain way, assigning properties to these classes a certain way. It's a it's like a mentality that you get. And what Mike and I were discussing, and the main value we thought of right away is the consistency. So for an example, one of the first things we announced on HTML, all the things which kind of fell by the wayside at this point, is the Roma Museum template. And what what I was telling Mike is, what if what if we, for example, said, okay, we're going to make Roma for HTML, all the things, and offer it as a theme, but we also have a client that's a museum, that has a museum and needs a site. So what we'll do is we'll make the template as a generic template, but we, but Mike, you need to do the, the, the client part of it. You need to do the client work. So as I'm working and as I'm finishing parts, you can take those and adapt them for the client. Well, it's going to be really difficult for Mike and I to work on that same UI together if there is no standard. So this CSS architecture is, you know, quote unquote, a better way to actually write it and it organizes it and everything. But that was one of the main things that we thought of was working in a team. Now your class names are consistent. People know what's going on. It, it's, it's once you're in there, you like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not, it's not so crazy as I'll just give an example. If I write nav bar and somebody else writes top bar as like the two classes, none of those are incorrect. But if Mike comes in, he'll be like, well, this is top bar. This one's nav bar. I think they're both at the top, but which one's the navigation? But they both are. So you know what I mean? There's no, there's no consistency with CSS because you make your own, you make your own classes. But with this, there's more of a consistent system where you can take a look and be like, oh, this is a button and its state is this. This is a button and its state is to approve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's kind of what I'm getting into. And I know, I know I'm talking kind of at a high level and this is like a more complex topic. So if you don't understand this, just take a look at these tools yourself and it will make more sense. It's kind of hard to explain, especially in summary. Um, but I think what I'll do now is um, pass it on to Mike for these last few points here. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Uh, so the next point uh, is build tools, and that's number 12. Um, now, we talked about this a little bit with the whole NPM. So M- what NPM has is NPM scripts. So and scripts, like like I said in that config file, you can actually get you can actually put scripts into there, like saying, uh, let's start, uh, let's start this application, let's package it this way, and then let's let's put a debug tag on it so that the application knows that it's in debug mode and gives me some console logs and all that stuff. Uh, so you can you you can use things called like like I said npm scripts to do stuff like that. Um, you can also use something called Webpack, which will take your application uh, and kind of pre like package it. Uh, so that you don't have to actually like write just general HTML, uh, JS, and CSS code, uh, just like you would. You can actually write separate separate files for each and every one of your sections, uh, and then use imports right in your JS code. Uh, and with that, with those imports, it's it's telling stuff like Webpack to take those to take like a library if you're importing a library or to take like a JSON file if you're importing a JSON file and upon building, upon compiling, actually put that file into that spot that you're importing. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a package manager. It's a, it's a, it's a way to package an application 
uh, that's maybe a little bit more complicated that has a lot of moving pieces. Uh, so you can move, you can work on different pieces simultaneously if you have a larger team. Uh, it's a way to do kind of like have a development server going on in the background as well that's constantly compiling on save uh, with reloading. Um, there's many, many different things that it, that that Webpack does, and I kind of am only going to scratch the very, very surface of it. Definitely look into it when you have a chance. Because uh, for myself, I'm actually not that versed with Webpack yet. I have started using it. It like the new uh, hat HTML things website is definitely based and packaged with Webpack. Uh, Vue.js in general, I'm pretty sure uses Webpack right off the bat. Um, just when you when you start it up, it uses Webpack to do all the compiling. Uh, so I definitely have a little bit of information about Webpack, but I'm not versed enough in it to kind of, you know, teach it at this point. But I will be looking into it more heavily in the future because uh, I see its value at this point right now, being able to use those imports, being able to kind of build those very modular applications uh, with Webpack. Uh, it just it just makes sense kind of to use at the stage that I'm at. And this kind of brings it to the point where it's like we're at point 12 now. So we're, you know fairly far down, uh, just a little over halfway to the very bottom. And these are really the main and more complicated topics that we're starting to cover. So once you get to these topics, uh, it's almost kind of inherent that you understand the rest of them as well. Even the ones down below, you kind of start getting getting a sense of them. Uh, and it it's really interesting. Like the, the learning process in web development is almost like learning a, like any sort of language. Uh, if you've ever learned like German, uh, French, or anything like that, you kind of at first you're very much scrambling on how you know to say hello and how to say goodbye. But as soon as you start getting an, like a, a few steps into it, you start like watching the sh- watching shows to understand you know dialogue and stuff like that. You start understanding it, and you start understanding it forward a little bit too, because you start understanding what you're missing, uh, what you still need to learn. Where at the start you're kind of you're so overwhelmed or you're so like basic that these first few steps seem so complicated and you don't really know where to start, where to go. Uh, but so this, the, what I'm trying to say is that this is the point in, in the learning process that I found that uh, I'm starting to see forward. I'm starting to see those like other opportunities, those other frameworks, those other, uh, those other technologies that could help me, could benefit me and how I could use them. Like I don't know, know exactly how to use some of these things, but I definitely understand it's, point and I can definitely go into it and be like well I know I, I need to use it here now like Google how to use it um, so and webpack is a really good thing because it kind of brings all that together because you need webpack uh, to be able to use many many different technologies at once due to the fact that it, it provides that importing and it provides that packaging solution um, so the other thing here is is uh, linting so uh, the main lint is called ESLint and what linting does is it it allows you to say you have a format of JS code that you like to write that has like uh, one of the things could be like, I don't like tabs. I like spaces. Uh, so make sure that everything is double, like two spaces instead of one tab. Um, I like to use my, I, I don't like anything to have a var because vars are bad. You know, like they don't, don't use vars. Like it, it's a personal preference thing, but there's a lot of like, you know, uh, reasoning behind choosing any one of these things, but pretty much you can take a format that you like Put it in an ESLint file or use the ESLint file that already exists. Um, I believe one of the more popular ones is uh, is it LinkedIn or something like that. I think LinkedIn has a really popular ESLint file that a lot of people use. And what you do is you kind of run your code through it 
And A, it can either tell you the errors that you have, and the errors would be like not actual errors. It'll tell you like, oh, you use tabs instead of spaces. Or B, you can actually get the ESLint file to fix your errors or your your warnings, as you would call them. Uh, and so you would have you would write your code however you want, and then you would run it through an ESLinter, and it would then put your code in the same format that you want it. So especially in a team environment, this is very essential because if you're if you come into a team, you don't know exactly how they write code in that team. They'll just be like, well listen, here's our ESLint file. Here's the specifications. Just look through the specifications, try to write your code like this, but the ESLint file will also help you out by telling you what you need to change and it'll actually change A, B, and C for you. Um, so it's it's definitely a good tool, especially in a larger team, especially if you like clean code, stuff like that. Um, so I think that these, uh, you know, build build tools are extremely important. These, these all tie into one category called build tools, uh, and it's really important to learn it at this step. I think this is a great step to 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 do it in is right after maybe learning some of that CSS architecture, uh, learning your package manager stuff like that, um, and right before learning and picking a framework. So, and that will lead me to uh, the next thing on the list, and that's uh, create something. And um, this is something that we haven't really done too much. And this is create something maybe a, and with a suggestion of a library. Um, what we really did was we created, like, like Matt said, we created a bunch of web apps like uh, a Chrome extension, a Chrome app, stuff like that. And that really took all that we had learned up until that point to be able to create it, plus giving us the opportunity to go out there and learn even more than than what we knew at that point. So I think it's I think this step is crucial as well, and it kind of happens multiple times throughout this whole roadmap, right? So if you if you notice back in step uh, what was it uh, five, go to search on GitHub and look at all those uh, projects, maybe add to projects, and then even in step uh, one where it says make five HTML layouts. Uh, a lot of this is like do, 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 do. So you learn something, just do, like you just make something with it. Because if you're not going to make something with it, you're going to you're gonna forget it. You're not going to retain it as well. Um, you're not going to be able to like showcase your skills. You're not going to be able to fine tune your skills. I think creating something is the best way to learn it, at least for me. And everyone's a different kind of learner. But uh, I definitely am a do it, do it, and, you know, then learn it kind of thing. And um I've definitely I definitely agree that you should get a good core concept of the of stuff like you know maybe read a couple articles on webpack watch a video I I do a lot of YouTube video uh, watching myself before I dive into something that I have no familiarity with but as soon as I watch like one video two videos I'll go and start like making my own project with it and then if I don't understand something I'll go back to a video I'll go back to the project uh, I'll go I'll go back to a, an article and I'll learn how to do that thing that I I don't understand which is, to me is a little bit easier than going there and you know watching 15 videos and being like, well, what did I just learn? Like I can't, I don't know, like there's a million different things in there. Uh, half those things I'm never going to use probably, but um, that's that's a personal preference thing. No one has to follow that, but that's how I kind of do it. I definitely agree with these steps where like create something, uh, do something, um, make a website, make a web app. Uh, it's definitely, I think it's an important step and it definitely should be done multiple times throughout the roadmap, not like let's learn the whole roadmap and then create something. No, definitely not do keep creating things as you learn that's definitely important an important aspect of this so the next thing uh here on the list is number 14 which is pick a framework and uh pick a framework seems very like you know solid like you pick one framework and then never leave it and stuff like that but realistically that's never going to happen um i agree with i agree with one aspect of this is that you should start with one of the frameworks. You shouldn't go like, I want to learn React, Vue, and Angular, which is the three frameworks that are listed here. 
Uh, I think it's important that you pick one off the bat, but you know that you might be using those skills that you're learning with this framework to transfer it to something else, to another framework at some point in the future. So it's important to learn not just like, oh, the API of a framework and like the, the very general basic concepts. It's, I, I think it's important to learn how a framework works, how it renders stuff, uh, even on a rudimentary level. Like just, just understand uh, how your that JavaScript in the background is being generated is important to then transfer those skills to, to any different framework that you want. So if you go to an interview uh, and you only know Vue.js, you could probably apply those skills to React because it is obviously different syntax, but it has a very similar field. There's a few different things that React does that Vue.js doesn't do and stuff like that. But in, in general, you should be able to, you know, spend a week with one with with, uh, with React and bring it up to speed uh, if you've already been familiar with something like Vue. Uh, the reason I mention Vue so much is because, you know, we've chosen Vue as our, you know, pick a framework. Um, and uh, we've definitely been using it quite often and we've been using it for... Uh, you know, I think well over a month, maybe two months now. And like this last couple of weeks have been very heavily in view for uh, Matt and myself. Uh, so I think, and this brings it to the point where this is kind of where I'm at right now. So um, I'm kind of at step 14, step 15, I would say comfortably. Uh, would, would step 15 uh, is practical time. So that's actually creating something at, in a modern framework. So that's what we're doing, right? With our uh, Vue.js hat website where like all the editing is going on um, through Vue.js, like interactive variables, the binding. Um, so we're kind of like, we're using all the all the skills and we're using our website to learn. And that's, again, another one of those like create something uh, situations. And it it's important to know where you're, I think where you're at. And this is kind of where I, I stick myself is I'm in the, I'm in sec- section 15 right now. Um, there is a few more to go. Uh, and it's not to say that I've never heard of the next sections, uh, but I would say that I'm very, I'm, I'm not well practiced in them. So um, to, to move on to them, uh, let's go into something like testing your applications. Uh, that's not, that's section 16. Uh, so testing your applications has many, many different uh, frameworks that you can use to test many different spot, uh, uses. So there, I'll, I'll just list a few of them here. So Jest, Mocha, Protractor, Karma, Enzyme. Uh, so these, um, and I'm just going to read this little tidbit here because I, they, he explains a lot more better than I can. Uh, there are lots and lots of different tools for different purposes. I mostly find myself using the ones listed on the left, which is the ones that I just mentioned. Uh, however, you, you before you learn them, I would recommend you first understand the different test types. Uh, and then he gives you a link to the different test types in the article. So te- test types would be like unit testing, uh, you know, user testing, stuff like that. Um, I think testing is something that I definitely need to focus on. The reason that we haven't done an extensive amount on formal testing uh, is because we're a team of two people. Um, we don't have too many of those like larger uh, web applications out there where it would require us to do an extensive amount of testing because thousands and thousands of people are using it. I have done extensive amounts of longevity testing uh, before with uh, with the applications that we did for our like for our client. Um, and that's that's a totally different thing. But we didn't do any uh, other testing other than that, other than the fact that we just, you know, sent it out to everyone on the team and made sure that they hammered at it. We didn't do any real formal testing, just, you know, a, a spreadsheet where people can log their issues and, uh, then just, you know, when the issue is solved and stuff like that. So 
Um, this is something that I definitely need to get better at and I definitely need to work at. And I, I definitely will be doing that in the next, you know, the next little while I'll be working on testing. Maybe I'll look into one of these uh, testing tools. It's, it should, it should be helpful in, in our development, especially with one of our clients with large, with, with a larger user base. Um, so that's, that's 16. Uh, let's move on to 17, which is progressive web apps. So I, I have very recently looked into progressive web apps. Uh, It's a very interesting concept. I really like them because what it allows you to do is it allows you to use these things called service workers, uh, which most of the modern websites now, modern uh, web browsers now support. And it allows you to do like, to do things like have an offline mode for your application. And this almost gives you like an app like functionality, like let's say on a cell phone. You can't expect a user to have internet access all the time, even though we are getting to that point where the world is getting more and more connected. But there are times when you're, you know, you're driving and all of a sudden you have bad connection. Uh, what the progressive web apps allow you to do is cache calls that your application would make in a thing called a service worker. So what it would do is um, your, let's say you need to call your server for all the content on your page. Uh, what it would do is when you're, online it would do the normal call regularly but it would use a service worker and it would cache that call in the background so it would cache that same like so the service worker would almost act as a pseudo uh server that it's that that you're calling so it would put the put the call into the service worker and when it detects offline mode and you have to enable this uh through through code um it would then call the service worker instead and get that cache response so yes you're not going to get the mo- the latest response from the server but you are going to get something and you are going to get that limited functionality even when you're offline uh because of that caching um i think this is a great way to uh to handle stuff like this uh i i love the fact that this is going on because i'm a big proponent of you know write one code base and use it everywhere if it if it's reasonable obviously on a on a you know performance intensive application i'm not saying to do that i'm saying like you stick with native if you can for those kinds of things but something like a small business uh application uh, for a small business like a you know a restaurant with a with a menu and stuff like that, there's nothing wrong with you using a web app, uh, a, the web app approach because performance isn't really that important in that situation. A modern a modern phone can handle opening a menu and listing through it. Um, it doesn't need to have that you know split second uh, responsive time and stuff like that. So use use at your discretion. But I'm a, I'm a very big proponent when you can to save that money, save that time, and use one code base for for all your applications. And this progressive web apps kind of give us that opportunity because it allows us to write almost native applications with a lot of the functionality. Uh, I, I believe they support like notifications natively uh, on on mobile devices. I believe they support. Um, I'm not sure if they support storage APIs yet, but I, I they might. I'm sure they support camera because even websites support camera. Um, so stuff like that. It, it does support some native functionality, which is cool, uh, without having to actually write native code. Really cool. Uh, definitely something I'll be looking into in the future. Uh, so the next thing here, number 18, uh, is static type checkers. So a lot of people, and I've had this discussion recently, will uh, you know bash JavaScript because it's not statically typed uh which 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 is in reference to um the fact that you can't put like int variable right int a is equal to one so you can't use integers you can't use doubles you can't use strings stuff like that it's not statically typed uh so what you're doing is you're putting a var and then your variable can become anything and then a variable 
plus another variable can become something else. And there's no real, you know, there's no compiling, so you don't know what's going on. So someone could, you know, add a string to a number, and then all of a sudden you have a string. And there's no, there's nothing in the compiler that'll tell you that you're doing it wrong. With thousands and thousands of lines of code, you can see where this can become a problem. Uh, and especially if you have a larger team, like how are you going to manage all this? If someone's going to always do var, like always, always, you know, add two strings together. And then all of a sudden they see a number, they're going to add that number together and then it's going to ruin your code. Uh, and it's going to be hard to find. So there's, there's solutions to this and I haven't looked into this thoroughly. So I just want to, I just want to say that again, like I, like I said, I was a couple steps, I'm a couple steps behind. That's how I view myself. Uh, but I have looked into this a little bit and I will be probably looking into this in the future, especially if I'm going to be writing code in a larger team. I feel like it's kind of important to uh, to stick to something like a traditional way of coding. And uh, TypeScript is one of those technologies. Uh, there's another technology called Flow. I've actually never heard of Flow. But TypeScript, I've definitely heard of. Uh, I know Node.js uses TypeScript. You can, you can add Node.js TypeScript. Uh, I believe Vue has a TypeScript plugin. A, a lot of the larger... Uh, you know, frameworks and fun and uh, and a lot of larger frameworks can can utilize TypeScript. Uh, and what it allows you to do is use is have like almost like a pseudo compiler, a little bit of a compiler in there, and allow you to type your variables. So you can actually put an int an int uh, you know a is equal to one, or a string is a string uh, name is equal to in quotes a, an actual string in there. Um, and if you don't do the right typing and you don't you don't do the right uh you know addition concatenation or addition or division if you, if if the math doesn't work out it's not just going to do it and then you know ruin your code what it's going to do is it's going to tell you that's as far as i understand it let me know if i've if if i've uh you know messed it up or anything like that uh, i would love to learn about it and i'm definitely going to be looking into it uh and then there's just two more things and i don't know if it's labeled uh incorrectly uh, numbered incorrectly, I'm not sure, but it's again 1718. Maybe it's just referring to the fact that you could learn these instead of these or learn these alongside these and they're the same. But uh, one of them is server-side rendering. Um, and it's uh, it kind of, you're allowed, you, you can use it with any framework that you decide. So Vue.js, for instance, has Nux.js to allow server-side rendering. It's like a separate library on top of it. Uh, what it, what server-side rendering is, is it renders the the page or, or a part of the page on the server and then serves that to you to then do any of your front-end uh, content you know modification with so i ran into an issue with this recently actually uh when you're sharing to facebook uh it actually does not run javascript on your page when you do a share api without actually passing the variables in uh, implicitly what it does is it will, you know, take your server-side rendered side of the page and just serve that. So what I was having an issue with is when I was sharing a page, it was it was using old variables from, you know, uh, the initial load of the page, not the variables that the, that the actual view, that Vue.js actually rendered. Uh, so how I could fix that in the future w would be to use something like server-side rendering. So it would serve the page with already those variables in place and then the rest of it I would do with the with the Vue.js code on top of that that I would need to do. Uh, that is a very viable method, and it is it is important. Uh, another thing that it provides is um, there were I th I think now Google is fully running JavaScript on your page. So when it when it Google crawls your page, it is going and running it, and then taking all your meta tags and stuff like that with the run JavaScript. I know before it wasn't doing that, and people were saying even when it started doing that, it wasn't very effective. I think now it's really caught up to the point where you don't have to worry about 
having to depreciate your page too much. Uh, so Google will actually render it. Uh, but other search search browsers might not. Like Bing, I'm not sure if it if it does JavaScript on the page. It's something that you you can look up. Um, but what this provides is that any page will be able to render your content pretty much. It'll be able to view your meta tags, view your content, view your tags, your 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 divs and stuff like that because you're serving it right to your right to the browser. And you're not modifying it in the browser in any way and. Uh, that, that's the main difference. So the, the server-side rendered stuff is rendering it on the server, serving it to the browser. Non-server-side rendered is just re- like giving you a very basic structure HTML that you put and then doing all the rendering on the on the actual browser side. Um, positive and negatives, negatives of each for sure. Uh, use them when you can. Again, this is not something that I've done very extensively, so I don't have a, too much of a suggestion on when to use it and stuff like that. Uh, and then the last thing here is... Um, all the things that were mentioned above. Uh, and that makes sense, like Canvas, any of the HTML5 APIs, SVG. SVG is kind of cool. Uh, I was looking into it recently. You can kind of do uh, like actual drawing, like dynamic drawing on your applications. Uh, source maps, uh, functional programming, uh, TC39, don't even know what that is. Uh, so there's many, 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 many. What, what this is referring to is that there's so much more that even this this comprehensive document doesn't cover. And... Uh, I wouldn't let you let it overwhelm you because there obviously is this much information and this much like technology out there. I think the most important thing that you can take from this document is the fact that yes, there are there are a lot of things that you need to learn if you want to become you know a very very talented, very uh, you know high, highly sought after web developer. But what it also tells you is that the things that you're learning at the start, at the very beginning, are very useful and use those things to build upon and make those like do those projects, have that practical time, make projects, use the skills that you learn as you're learning. Don't just learn and then do like do while you're learning. That's for sure a very big point that I got out of this uh, front end, uh, front end developer, uh, front end roadmap. And I think you should, too. Uh, everything else is kind of, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, know that you can learn it in a different order and it'll still be fine. That's not that's not an issue. Like if you if you look at it right now and be like, oh, man, I learned like, uh, you know, preprocessors way before I learned any sort of NPM packaging. Don't panic like that. There's nothing to panic or like uh, there's no reason to panic or like get, be concerned with how you learned it because you learned it and it's it's your path. It's your journey. This is more for like a brand new developer if they really want to have some sort of structure for them. It's not a bad way to go about it. I kind of recommend looking at least looking at this, getting familiar with some of the words, some of the frameworks, some of the you know understanding of what everything is and then kind of make your own path as you go. Um, but I think that's all I'm going to say about this uh, about the front end developer roadmap. Uh, and I'm going to just pass it off to Matt if he has any comments or if he wants to move on to the next segment, uh, I, we can do that too. Um, well, I think you covered that really extensively. And I, I kind of have a question actually. Um, and so we use the term library and framework kind of interchangeably when we talk to each other mm-hmm. and we know what we're talking about. So point 13 here where it says create something, maybe a library. And this goes back to um, this goes back to the, I'm actually just going to read the blurb actually to clarify. So it says you can call yourself a 75% modern JavaScript developer. Now go ahead and create something with all that you have learned. Um, some, maybe some, sorry, maybe create some sort of library in which you have to use SAS and JavaScript, then use Webpack to convert SAS to CSS and use Babel to transpile ES6 code. Uh, 
once you are done with release on GitHub and NPM. So well, my question is, is do we know what the cutoff or what specifically the difference between a framework versus a library is? Because, for example, a CSS framework it would be the Bootstrap Materializer Bulma, as mentioned before. What exactly would a library be in this case? So, as I as I would understand it, it would be like a UI kit for Bootstrap or something. I don't know whether that makes sense. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of just I'm kind of just thinking out loud, really. Yeah. So I'll I'll try to explain it, and I don't know the definite answer for this, but I think I I understand it to a certain degree. Um, so a, a library is more of a one functionality thing. So like something like a slider would be a library. Something like uh, adding like an infinite scroll to your page that's a library. So you're you're adding a functionality to your page, whereas a framework is creating something completely from like you know, pretty much using multiple multiple different uh, like things inside of it, multiple different code code like work inside of it, uh, and combining that all and creating something large. So creating a whole page, for instance, like Vue.js will create a whole page for you, right? Whereas something like Lightbox will create just a Lightbox. So that's a library. Vue.js is a framework. Okay. Strangely, strangely, it's called a library, in my opinion, because with a library, you think like, oh, it has multiple books in it. So yeah. therefore, I would always think like there'd be more stuff in it. But the library in this case is actually the lesser, the lesser large section, like the smaller section. Yeah. That's weird. That's, that's weird to wrap your hand around. All right. I just wanted to know. What? Because we we just we just talk and we know what we're talking about, right? Like I'll be like, oh, this library framework, whatever view, like right? Because we're just trying to get through whatever meeting we're in or whatever, mm-hmm. and people know what we're talking about, especially between ourselves. But just something for the for the listener. Sure. Uh, I think uh, I think you can move on to the old segment number two. Then I think that, I think like this concludes the roadmap discussion, which is quite extensive. Yeah, um, yeah, we definitely but- covered that more extensively than I even thought we would. But yeah, that's good. I, I think it'll it'll be beneficial. Um, so yeah, I'll move on to the next segment, uh, segment number two update on HTML, all the things. So in last week's episode, uh, we talked about kind of where we're at, what we need to do to, to finish the site up. Uh, and this week we kind of, you know, did, did everything we needed to do to finish the site up. Now, barring a couple of little things we're still going to do after this call even, or after this uh, podcast. But pretty much uh, this week, I was working on authentication for administ- admins. Uh, so you're able to, you know, go into go into a login page, log in to the site as an admin. And then with that, it gives you the admin panel and you're able to edit, delete and add content. So not a, re- a regular user will not be able to do that. Uh, it's all behind like, you know, actual Node.js authentication, including uh, a Vuex store to store that authentication. So that was a that was a cool experience i really enjoyed actually adding that that had not too much problems there was really good uh information online on how to so that's one thing uh the next thing i did and this was all actually while i was away on my trip in the hotel i added a pagination uh to our content so if you have you know more than nine things on the page uh don't show those not the rest of it and it's server-side pagination uh, so that I can just keep calling the server for, for the extra things. Uh, and what we did was we used infinite scroll and people can let us know if they don't like infinite scroll or if they think the other, other ways of pagination work better. Uh, I think like, just cause I've been using Reddit a lot, I've been using Instagram a lot, uh, Facebook a lot. Uh, they just use infinite scroll and it seems to just, you know, be very, 
easy to use and I'm hoping that'll transfer over UI wise to everyone else. So, but we can definitely change it if there's like, you know, an outcry of people hating it. Um, I have no problem with that, but, uh, yeah, so pretty much I had to install an infinite scroll library and, uh, then I just used, you know, I, I created pagination code on the server side, on the, on the front end side. And I implemented that with the infinite scroll and it's worked out pretty well. Obviously there was a few issues while I was doing it, but everything kind of wor- worked out in the end. It works extremely pretty fast now actually i've actually intentionally slowed it down a little bit for it not to be as jarring uh because before it would actually like load even faster than i thought and it would it would be almost like the page was loaded beforehand i don't know maybe that is the better way to do it i'm not sure but i slowed it down for now um next thing next thing i did was a major code refactoring there was actually a lot of components uh there was a lot of code in there that i could like externalize into a component so that's what i did with a couple of things uh, so I just, you know, took took a bunch of the HTML, JS, and CSS code, made a separate component, and just imported the component just to kind of make it a little more neat inside. And if we ever need to reuse those things, we can reuse them. It just kind of comp- compartmentalizes the code a little bit better. Um, I think our, 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 hub, our hub component was just getting a little bit out of hand, so I decided to kind of take care of that before it got even more out of hand. Uh, and then I got a, a, I got rid of a lot of redundant variable settings. So I was setting variables on like created on the created object, which means like pretty much on load. I was setting variables on switching of the routes and stuff like that. I was setting, I was setting variables redundantly a lot because when I was writing, I was writing quickly and I just wanted to, you know, get it to work. And uh, what I did was I went back, made sure that none of the variables were redundantly being set millions of times. There's no point. Uh, and I kind of cleaned it up that way. There's still some more to clean up. I already I know of some that I'm going to look into in the future. But for now, I think it's in a decent state to be uh, production ready. Um, then the next thing I did was I deployed uh, those changes as well as uh, server, server authentication and database authentication, uh, like database admins and users to DigitalOcean, uh, the DigitalOcean Docker setup. And that was a whole thing. Like I, I am... Con- firmly seated in the fact that I will not be a DevOps person. Like I will not go into that field probably ever in my career. Um, I don't like it. I don't, I don't get any kind of satisfaction out of it, but I kind what I, what I kind of did was literally just like shoot the shoot in the dark. Like, is this going to work? No, is this going to work? No, is this going to work? Okay. It worked. That's fine. Uh, I would love to have someone that knows this stuff, like the back of their hand, take a look at my like Nginx configuration file. Uh, take a look at my Docker files and see if I'm like very glaringly doing something wrong where like someone will be able to like hack the site in seconds. Uh, I don't think I am, but again, I am very much not into this kind of stuff and I, I don't plan on getting too far deep into it. So for now it's kind of just there and working. Uh, it's working how I want it to work and the authentication seems to be working just fine. So I'm not too concerned, but again, if anyone wants to kind of, you know, lend a hand on this, I have no problem letting them take a look at the code uh and telling me what i did wrong because i'm sure i did many many things wrong especially on the devops side um but yeah other than that that's about it uh we're we're in the stages of you know doing the uh, data entry soon uh i still need to do a little bit of tweaking on the actually editing content um and but other than that i think i'm done like i'm very very close to being done first stage deployment what about you matt yeah, so um, I did like a variety of UI changes over the last you know few weeks here and there, tweaking stuff, UX stuff, uh, getting getting like you know properly formatted uh, photos and pictures and stuff ready, and then 
I think it was yesterday we started looking at, and this always happens, oversights uh, of stuff. So, for example, you know, the we have a dynamic, for some reason, RSS feed link for each of the podcasts right now. But then it's like, well, the, R- the RSS doesn't change. So why did we make it user editable? And then why is it like not auto autofill? It just kind of like we have to get it every single time, copy paste. So like little things like that. Um, other things included, like I, I keep track of the links to the various episodes of the podcast. And I was keeping track of the full length, a shortened link, as well as a YouTube link. But we didn't consider that, oh, with the availability bar, which is the thing where it says also available on people can click through. It, we never considered the the various services like TuneIn or Stitcher or whatever. Some of them have individual pages for each of the episodes. It's not just like the RSS feed. So first of all, it's like we have these editable fields because we half assumed that, oh, we'd need dynamic things for each episode. But then we foolishly thought, oh, it's on a third-party service. There won't be individual pages. So, you know, we you always catch like kind of broken logic like that when you're going through. So we kind of, you know, kind of refactored some stuff and like are thinking about changing some stuff in, you know, you know, a future version. Some of it's not necessarily broken. It's just not fully UXed out, if you will. And then right now, I suppose we are, we're in the final steps. We were, we were working on data entry and that type of thing. And we have started, we have started specifically discussing the the future plans so a lot of a lot of my work came out of like before and then you kind of went high am into you know putting together all the server stuff and making sure it all worked with the ui that i had created so at this stage it's like okay now that the the server's all together and that type of thing and it's getting very close to being done version one now we're talking about like you know version 1.1 for example so right now it's very kind of stripped stripped down there's not many transitions actually there I don't think there are transitions there's not many hover effects there's not many you know very like flashy things or like little little nice intricacies and that's sort of something we'll be getting that we'll be putting up when I come back from vacation and it's just one of those things where you know, we have to kind of go through the fine tooth comb, fix up those little UX problems, like I said, with the editable fields, and then we need to clean all that up. And then we're also making proceed. We need to make procedures as well for link gathering. So it's like when I make an episode, what services I need to grab the links for, and where do I store them? And then I have to make sure that there's a repost. Um, there's a repost policy. So for example, we put like our Podbean is our podcast host. I put it up there, I put the show notes there, but we're also going to have redundant show notes on the actual site. So what's the procedure there? So like, it's a lot, what I'm doing right now, since my UI stuff is mostly done, is a lot of procedural stuff, a lot of looking at the future and being like, oh, a box shadow would be nice here, a hover effect would be nice here, and that type of thing. And and that'll come in in a few weeks, and I think we'll be tweaking quite a bit as we move forward as well. Um, And then also to bring the capitalist side into it, of course, we're looking at monetizing the site as well. So things like, you know, looking to see where we can add banners. Cause like, I don't want to like, I don't want to bombard people and have things pop up where it's like, you know, sign up for a newsletter here and that type of thing, you know, at this point and you know, in general, I don't want to do that. Um, so right now we're looking at, you know, unintrusive, uh, little banners and that type of thing, just to, just to sort of get a little bit of revenue flowing, uh, for the site. And we're looking at, we're looking at like that, that type of thing. And then we're looking at, you know, basically expanding our social media horizon as well, which is not really necessarily an update on the site itself, but the social media drives traffic to the site and vice versa. So it's just, everything's kind of coming together now. And as a final note, 
we are now planning content. So content is being planned as well at this point. And basically what we, I think we had said this in the show before, but it's like all the time that we're putting toward the actual website right now will then be used as content creation time. And so what I'm looking at is I heard a couple, or I, I read a couple of articles saying one of the things you should do if you want to start writing on, you know, medium or just like writing professionally to an extent is to write every day, whether you publish or not. So I'm kind of looking at that. Um, so for content plan, cause I'll kind of be the king of content for a while, I think, uh, as Mike does uh, a lot of like the service work. So one thing I'm looking at is potentially trying to make sure that I, that I write like frequently, like when I come back, I want to write every day if I can not necessarily publish it and might not even be stuff for HTML, all the things. Cause I do write stuff about gaming and other stuff that happens, uh, that I like my other hobbies or whatever, right. Just kind of write in general. So I kind of want to get into that. So that I can more easily generate content, write better show notes or more to the point show notes because they are just supposed to be show notes. You're supposed to be listening to the show and and write like better guides, write better social media posts. So I think writing is kind of on my ticket in terms of content. So everything's kind of coming together. If you haven't noticed, we've like been talking about everything now. It's like the site's up. We're talking about content. We're talking about procedures we have to make. We're talking about everything. Everything is starting to really come together. Uh, the podcast is obviously off on a good foot, a uh, really great foot, actually getting some good feedback on that and getting good download numbers and, you know, just looking to grow at this point. So yeah, really the podcast has been our rock the whole time. As we've said, it's something steady we want to do each week and now everything is coming together and now we need to get the procedures in place so that the content comes together. And I think that kind of sums up where we're at at the moment. Um, I think at this point, I kind of want to move on to web news because we are already at an hour and 12 in. <laughs> so, or like around there anyway. As so, um, as is tradition. Yeah. Every single time Mike and I go like, man, I don't know about this. Like, I don't know whether we're going to have enough to talk about. And then we come look, we go and look and we go, Oh, well, you know, it's, you know, hour 30 in or whatever. That, that's good. Uh, so anyway, so web news. So this was suggested uh, via a Twitter or sorry, an Instagram DM. And, um, basically it's, it's, basically Microsoft Office versus uh, Google Docs or the Google Office Suite, whatever you'd like to call it. So as usual, I got some rough notes here. I'm going to read those and then we'll have a discussion. So Microsoft Office has a uh, premium paid for desktop experience in the form of of the Office Suite, right? So basically it's the main programs in there, as everyone knows, is Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. And what some people don't actually know is that they also do have a free online version called Office Online, and it's a counterpart that works at a basic level for editing. Uh, it also works for viewing documents online. Uh, it also works for if you're in OneDrive, let's say, so it plugs into OneDrive. Uh, it like basically if you're on OneDrive online on the actual on the actual web app, if you will, you'll click on you know let's say a, do- a Word doc, and it'll essentially pop up in a viewer, which is essentially uh, Word Online. And of course, because it's Microsoft Office and Microsoft runs OneDrive, it, it they all work together, right? There's a desktop app, there's a web app, there's a mobile app for OneDrive in it. They all plug into to each other. And you can also do, there's some collaborating, there's some collaboration tools or multiple people can edit documents and it, it's extensive, right? It's Microsoft Office, it's the Office Suite, it's there for business, it's been around for years, It's it's big. And now we have sort of the new kid on the block, if you will, and that's sort of the Google Office Suite or whatever you want to call it. And so it's a similar offering. However, there is, as far as I know, no paid component to the, you know, the sort of the main app. So Google Docs, 
which is essentially the Word equivalent, Google Sheets, which is the Excel equivalent, and Slides, which is the PowerPoint equivalent. And those are the main programs within this Google suite, like I said, Docs, Sheets, and Slides. And it, it integrates with Google Drive, so that's Again, like OneDrive, but this is the Google Drive, of course, and they have collaboration features. So there's that. They they also have uh, desktop, quote unquote, apps, if you will. So if you're using Chrome, you can have you can uh, use it. I don't know whether it's considered a progressive web app, but there's a way to use them offline if you're using Chrome on a desktop. There's always there's also the the Chromebook apps and as well as the smartphone apps for Docs, Sheets, and Slides. So. It's interest. It's an interesting comparison. It's like, is there a need for both? Is one better than the other? You know, there's pros and cons, but there are several, several similarities. So I'm gonna kind of let Mike dive in because I know I'm gonna have a conflicting point with him on this. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I'm I'm more of a Google guy, and um, I mean, our business is all Microsoft. So we have the Office 365 suite, as we've mentioned, and stuff like that. I would say I'm okay with it. Um, it was mostly Matt's call since he was the one that was setting it up. So, like, obviously, it's it's on him to do that. Uh, and I'm, I'm okay with it at this point. Um, we've been using it. It's mostly been fine. But well, the things I like about Google Drive and Google Docs and all those, uh, the suite of apps is, A, it's free. It's accessible on any computer, uh, no matter how weak your computer is, whatever. Uh, as long as you have an internet connection, you can kind of load it up at least once, and then you're you're good to go offline, even with it. Um, I like, I mean, the thing that beats Office by a large margin is the collaboration tools. The fact that it's free gives it very very easy. Like, oh, I'm I'm working with a client. Let's send them this link to the document. We both are working on the same document. It's live. You're working on it live. You don't have any issues. You can you know edit even talk in the document you can chat in the document um the formatting for me like i'm not a huge format person i like all the formatting in google drive in the google docs uh so i just i use it as my sole uh writing application i used to use word uh the last time i formatted my computer formatted my computer i didn't even install office 365 even though i have a copy um, I don't know why I, I could still do it because it, it's kind of still a pain. If I receive a docx file, I have to kind of like open it in Google docs. It takes a couple extra steps, but I just haven't had too much of a need. Like I receive a docx file once a month maybe, and I have to go through a couple of steps. Not a big deal for me. Um, I mo- most like mostly it's collaboration, like it, throughout uh, school university, <clears throat> excuse me. Throughout university, I worked on a lot of group projects, like a lot, a lot of group projects. If you're ever in school, you know what I'm talking about. And without Google Docs, it would have been a nightmare. Like we, I think we tried Word online once and it was like a five, 10 minute delay for some reason. Like we had no idea. Like we, I would start typing and all of a sudden, five minutes later, all was like my text would be janked and half the page would be like up, like a, a kilometer up and stuff like that. Like I just... I don't know what they didn't do right. Uh, it could be changed at this point, but I'm kind of like almost scared of using it because of just the time waste that that happened when I did. Um, also, OneDrive has had we've had issues with OneDrive pretty consistently. Uh, it's good now, not that like honestly now we use it for its generated purpose, but when we were using it as an actual development drive, 
and we had a lot of files constantly syncing. There was constantly like syncing issues, and all of a sudden your drone drive just stopped syncing in general, and you had to like exit it, go into it again. Anyway, um, now that we're using it for what its intended purpose as kind of like a cold storage, uh, it's working fine, and I have no issues with it for that purpose. But as a working drive, I would definitely not recommend it at this point. Um, yeah, like I'm, I'm on the, I'm on the Google side, so I'd like to hear what you have to say to combat me. Although I know like half of the arguments at least. Well, yeah, because like I mean, I I set up our infrastructure uh, for the company, so like the email and the website and getting everything registered and getting the DNS all set up and you know all that infrastructure backend stuff. And so I opted for uh, the Office three six five or whatever you want to call it for business, right? So. We have like one drive and we have, and I have Office 365 uh, personal as well. So like that's an attestment to how much I'm a fan of Office and that type of thing. Um, I will say that in terms of we've, we've tried, like you tried the collaboration tools with, uh, with some classmates. I've tried the collaboration tools. Excuse me. We've, we have tried the collaboration tools, uh, within the company and we had similar problems where text was kind of disappearing. Things weren't syncing. I think we lost connection a couple of times. Again, one experience. So. And years ago. So one experience and years ago. So your mileage may vary. Could have been bad internet. Could have been us being doing something stupid. Who knows? But we never really went back. Uh, the Google solution is more plug and play from my experience. However, I will say that I do enjoy having, I do enjoy having a premium desktop app, uh, like potential, like having it there as something that I can fall back on. I like that it, compliments a free version so if for some reason i didn't pay my subscription fee for office 365 that month and i lose access to word i can still absolutely view and edit my documents to some extent so i like having that i like having the the option for both i like that because we're using OneDrive, that it you know it all works together there's there's uh like so for example i'll just give a shit of example you can simply sync to several different OneDrives from Word, as an example. Now, with that example, there's a several, there's quite a bit of issues saving, and I don't know, again, whether that's us or what. I don't really seem to experience it on the personal side too much. But Word, as of recently, and I don't know whether I'm on the latest version, but it has, like, it'll... If you save to, like, a OneDrive, it'll, like, constantly autosave. But for some reason, whenever I try to go and save, it takes, like, 20 seconds or something because it's keeps pulling up this window where it's, like, trying to communicate with your with your drive. And so it's trying to, like, figure out, like, what's going on. And it there's some sort of – there's something there. Like, Mike and I, for the longest time, too, and this this is gone as far as I know, uh, before, before this whole update where it used to autosave, so maybe – half a year ago or so we used to always try to like you know we'd go into word like into word we'd type up a document we'd try to save to our one drive and we would try to save it locally so we'd literally like go to the hard drive and then just select where one drive was and try to just save the file and what it would do is it would realize oh it's one drive and it would try to do this like interconnected thing where word was like directly connecting to one drive it wasn't just saving on the hard drive and then one drive handles it it's like trying to intercept it or trying to like be that connection and it would go through this upload center. And upload center failed like 98% of the time. I don't know what we were doing wrong. I don't know whether it was us. I don't know what was going on. But as far as I know, that is now gone. I haven't seen that icon for a long time. And this version seems to work. And I do like that once it's, once it's auto-saved, like once it's, once it's saved once, once it's authenticated, it seems to be totally fine. It seems to be 
it seems to be absolutely like it saves automatically. I have like absolute confidence in it. I'm not afraid of it. I'll continue working from my on a document from my computer to my phone and to my other into like my my Windows tablet and stuff. So like I have absolute confidence. So I think that's that. This is where my pros come in, and this is why I really like it. Is first of all, I like Outlook and that type of thing. And I know that's not that wasn't listed in the main programs of the Google ecosystem, but it's absolutely it's absolutely like like a part of the ecosystem it's this ecosystem argument again i think it comes back to the conversation we had with uh, a few episodes ago where i kind of like being in one ecosystem and i like having everything all on one and i like having the confidence that everything's going to be together and i like i like having everything for uh i want to say formal but that's that like everything in uniform i think is the best way to say it and so like i don't really i don't even use outlook like the 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 app i don't even use outlook on on the computer outlook desktop or whatever they call it these days i just use the web app but i like having everything together and i for some reason how microsoft has set things up makes more sense to me i understand it's very similar but like even when it comes to servers i always like found myself gravitating toward microsoft uh in terms of when i was doing server administration like i can absolutely administer linux that's fine but like i found myself going there so i don't know whether it's like Full disclosure, I don't know whether it's like me being a fanboy, if you will, or what it is. Because like, like I said, I just listed off a bunch of the problems we were having. But it just seems to me like it's when Microsoft works. And we've said this with Mike and we, we've recently moved to Microsoft Teams. I know that's outside of the, the realm of this Microsoft Office apps thing. But like Mike and I recently moved to Microsoft Teams. And honestly, it is so, it is so much better it is it is so much better than what we were using before. So we were using Google Hangouts, which admittedly is sort of a dead app to an extent. And it is it is so much better now that we're using Teams. It connects to everything we're using. It's 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 right there. And again, it's that it's that ecosystem. It like it has a grip in on me. And I don't know whether it's I I'm I'm fiercely brand loyal as well as a full disclosure. So whether it's part of that with me where I'm like, oh, I like this app and it works really fine. But now that now, for example, like now that that whole upload center scenario is gone and I have this like auto saving word, like I really like that. It it works really well. Uh, There were some weird lag problems a couple of versions ago I had with word as well. And those are gone. So like when Microsoft works and it often does, it works like usually like really, really well. And there's always problems, of course, as with everything and anything, but like I, I don't know what it is. Like it's, it's like Google to me, and this isn't an insult on Google, but Google Docs and Sheets and whatever. Like I mostly have experience with Google Docs specifically, so I'm taking my other comments on other stuff with a grain of salt. But I find Google Docs to be like Office Online and a non-premium version. And I, I'm not trying to like say that as an insult because I use Google Docs to, to, to compile the show. I use Google Docs quickly to put things together. I'm on another podcast and we use Google Docs. I'm absolutely fine with using it. But I, I find it to be a slimmed down experience, whereas I find Word to be a really full experience, even though I don't use the advanced features of Word. I don't know whether that's a premium complex or what. I don't know what it, that would be considered. Yeah, uh, I don't know what. Weird. It's weird. Like I, I, I think I think this web news is just so that it brings out my weirdness mm-hmm. with like a lot of stuff. But like it's it's, I mean, 
you even said it, Mike, our email works fantastically. Like there's no problems with our email. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't recall something going down. I like, or it ever going down. I really like how I can easily attach things from my OneDrive into my email. I really like how easily Microsoft plugs into everything. Like it, like it plugs into any email app I've tried and it plugs in like flawlessly. The, The contacts make, make a bunch of sense. Uh, like all my contacts are stored on Microsoft services or on Microsoft, on the Microsoft service, whether it be personal or business, all my contacts are served there or like stored there. And then I just sync it to all my devices and it like, it works really, really well. Email works fantastically push. Like I've never missed a notification. So I think, I think maybe what it is, and I know this escapes the office a bit, but in terms of Microsoft, I just had a really good experience at one point and I can't even really name what that would be, but I had a really good experience at one point. And I just became brand loyal maybe, but it's not, but like I, I can be torn from a brand quite e- like not quite easily, but I can be torn from a brand. It's not impossible to tear me from a brand, but like the upload center and the weird lag problems and the, and again, the collaborating that we tried years ago and only once that we had trouble with. Those are three things out of like a hundred things that I use that are all together Whereas with Google, maybe it's because I didn't start with Google. Maybe it's because Google came out later. And so I was like, well, I don't want this. Or even still, DocX, for example, as a format is more standard. And I remember in college them being like, you have to have Word because we're going to send you DocX files. And that was absolutely true. People would try to use OpenOffice or whatever to get around the fact that they didn't want to purchase Office. And this was before we knew they were they were giving us a free version as a part of our like tuition or whatever. But in the beginning, in the very first semester, people were like, oh man, I can't open DocX. Like, I, or I can open DocX, but like, I'm not getting the full DocX experience. I'm getting this really weird, like I'm getting these weird messed up titles. Like it's not rendering properly because you're opening it in a program that's just trying to be compatible. It's not actually Word. And so you're getting a better experience. And that actually might be the turning, may have been the turning point for me. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I installed like Word, I think it was 2007 at the time, Word 2007, I was like, oh man, this is such a better experience. And I think I've just been loyal ever since then. Yeah, I mean, that's that's fair. Uh, I I would say that you're loyal maybe to... A, I don't know if it's to a fault, to be honest, because I've seen people loyal to the point where they won't use any other product, which is crazy. At least, at least you're willing to use other products. But, I mean, the one thing I'll say, uh, the advantage of you being Microsoft and us not going full Google is at least I get to experience other stuff. And I, I I like to experience other technologies. Like you said with Teams, that was a you know a pleasant surprise with the fact that it like how well it works. Um it's a little bit frustrating that like we were using Skype beforehand for our video calls and our uh screen sharing. Um and like the difference between Teams and Skype is like night and day. It's it's like they're using two different completely technologies. Uh, Teams is just so much crisper. The screen sharing never fails, uh, and it never like goes to a worse quality. Like we, Matt and I live, I don't know, 30, 40 kilometers away from each other, and we would have serious issues screen sharing where like I could see like maybe thirteen pixels on his screen and vice versa. Uh, with Teams, that's never happened. So we know it's not a connection issue. It's something to do with Skype. Um, so I'm happy that I got to experience that because if it wasn't for our, you know, like the Office 365 subscription, we wouldn't have had that. And I don't mind using both ecosystems because it separates me 
like my work and my personal life is now separated not just by like different accounts it's separated by ecosystems which makes it a little bit easier to separate um now i do use some microsoft stuff on my phone like i, I use the email and the gmail client because uh, microsoft works in gmail and uh, no problem um and stuff like that but other than that i try to like you know keep my work and and uh social life a little bit separate at least have some sort of line and this helps in that way so i don't mind it um but like to me all those positives that you were mentioning like oh you know microsoft has amazing email uh microsoft has amazing this like other than teams i would say because i don't think although we haven't used hangouts for business which is a new application uh inside of google so i don't know how good that is that could be just as good it could be like really bad Knowing Google is probably not that great. Um, well, it's, it's true. Like their messaging is not great. Like it's just not great. So I'm, I'm assuming Hangouts for Business is not as great. I would like to try it at some point, but who knows? Uh, but other than that, I would say that Google will do everything just as good. Like their email is also never going down. Like their uh, for for me, like like you said, I don't use those advanced features. Like I don't use any of the advanced features in Excel. I don't use any of the advanced features in Microsoft Word that I could that I wouldn't use that I couldn't use in Docs. All the features that I use are in Docs, just like in Word. Um, it now opens Docx files no problem. Like I mean, you said 2007, right? So yeah, I, I agree with you there. It wasn't that great at opening or even like it, I don't think it even could open them. I think open office is the only one. And like you said, it was janked. Um, I don't know. Like I just, I'm very much adaptable to new technology. So I go, I go where the technology is best at the time and I'm okay with it dying the next year and then going to an, a new thing in in a year. Like I don't mind as long as I'm using the best at that current time. Um, I think that's where me and you differ the most is like, I, I have nothing like really terrible to say about Microsoft because I use it for a lot of different things and I don't mind using it, but I really like, I can see the benefits of Google. And if I, if we had the switch tomorrow to Google, I would have no qualms about that. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, say anything like that. That's fine. If, and if, if let's say hypothetically Yahoo all of a sudden becomes this massive company and puts out their own suite and it has A, B and C better than Google, I'd be like, let's go to Yahoo. You know what I mean? Like I just, that'd be fine by me. Because if they if they're the best at that time, why don't and 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 a they're free, or like even if you have to pay the 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 same amount that we're paying for Office 365, I think that Google's is a uh, is similar, if not, uh, I think it's the same amount that you would have to pay for using Google's uh, suite for business. Uh, so it just makes sense to me to use whatever one is available. I don't mind using Microsoft's though, so that that's where I'm gonna leave it. I, I would say I would say we should we should conclude I think with a very brief conversation on whether Google Docs because it is free and because it is so comparable to Microsoft Office and I think this this ties in really close with the DM that I received is because Google Docs and the Google Office Suite or whatever they want to call it is free and very comparable do you think that Microsoft Office slash Microsoft Office Suite is obsolete or what place does it have in the market specifically as a as a premium product let's assume because like you can pay so let's assume you get you're getting the full google experience and you're getting the full microsoft experience so to, in order to get that microsoft one you have to pay for it um in my opinion it, ha- it absolutely has a place because 
Uh, a lot of people are more familiar with it, and I I don't think that it's a good thing for only one company to rule that that landscape. Like, if Google, let's say, if Microsoft was like, let's screw, screw it, we're leaving Office three six five and leaving Microsoft Word and all that because Google's beating us and all this. I think that that would be detrimental to everyone because Google would become stagnant. They wouldn't add anything to their suite because there's no competition. So the I I'm a huge proponent of competition in industry. And Microsoft's competition, I think, is strong. Like, I don't think that there's, again, too much variation between the two, to be honest. Uh, I think, like, any normal person could use one or the other and get everything done. So I don't see any problem with that. Um, I think it's a good thing. And I think they, they keep releasing updates and they keep adding new features, making it faster, making it stronger. So I'm a... I'm definitely for the fact that Microsoft, I think Microsoft definitely has a space in this industry and I think they have an even larger space uh, than, than Google in, in like the actual, you know, office applications and office 365 stuff. I, I would agree because like, there's a lot, there's a lot in like, to be clear, like even in teams, there's a whole, there's a whole marketplace of apps and plugins and that type of thing that we have never even touched and we're impressed with teams as it is. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think really what it comes down to is is how you use the product. Like if you're if you're looking just to do a really quick collab, I think that personally I think that Google Docs beats it. And I think like that's what we do for the the show. I'm looking at a Google Doc right now, but if we're doing something where we need this document to automatically attach itself to a calendar invite and then have the meeting automatically appear like something like i don't know making up a scenario i would be more confident that microsoft whether it be via plugins or whatever would be able to do that and it would plug into our teams because there's a meetings section of teams and like we're in a meetings call right now and that's like that's all because of the microsoft service we're not in a call where you called me we we made a meeting where we said we're going to record the podcast at whatever time and then we clicked on the meeting and pressed join and I think that that, I think that the premium price of, of having, let's say like word and that type of thing is going to come from people using advanced features. Um, I've never used any Google docs, for example, advanced features in comparison to like word advanced features. I'm not even sure if there are any, but I know that there are more advanced features of word in which people are probably using it in very innovative ways where they have a workflow that requires like it to connect to this SharePoint or export this certain way, or they have templates that are, you know, custom templates that they've uploaded into word or they've made in word with, with coloring with their company and that type of thing. And I assume as far as my exposure to them, both docs and word, I assume the word is better at that. Uh, I also think there's a reason why I don't see people making Google sheets outside of very basic ones. Or ones that that a lot of the time, if somebody needs to have the public contribute, they use a Google Sheet. I don't see people doing their finances in Google Sheets. I I personally have never seen it. I'm sure people absolutely do it. I'm not saying it can't do that. I'm not saying that at all. But in my experience, especially if it's like a large company, I would see them doing that in Excel and then, you know, putting it into whatever accounting software they have on top of that. So I don't know. I I think I I'd say my verdict is yes, I agree with you that there is a place for Microsoft Office. Absolutely agree with you there. It it keeps them both on their toes. They're both fighting all the time, you know, you know, it's it's competition, right? Um I'm just looking now Google Docs has a thing that says add-ons do more with Docs. 
So, I mean, there's like add-ons there. There's in teams, there's, you know, a store and like the, we're, they're pushing each other forward, which is really good. And I would say at this point that, and this is a biased opinion probably, but I think that Microsoft is better for the more advanced stuff and Google is better for the more consumer quick, let's just bang out a quick collaboration here piece. And I think you could absolutely do both with both services. Like you could do something complex on Google and you could do something easy with Microsoft. But I just think in terms of UX, that's my opinion on that. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say they both have a place. And I think that the premium that you pay for Microsoft personally is worth it. And I'm fine with, I'm fine with free with Google, obviously. So that's my, that's my conclusion. I don't know whether that's a, I don't know whether that's an actual conclusive point, but I think there's space for both and there's, there's pros and cons of, of each and the UX is different for each, but that's good because it's got, it's competition in the market. So, mm-hmm. cause I don't, I don't think open office is holding a torch to Microsoft word. I don't think open office is holding a torch to docs. I'm not saying in terms of functionality or usability or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all, but I don't hear about people talk about open office. I don't hear people talk about it. I don't hear people talk about LibreOffice. I don't hear, I don't hear people talk about that. I hear people talk about word and I hear people talk about docs. So, I think those are the big boys in the space with those other guys, you know, doing well, admittedly, they probably have millions of downloads at this point, but that's my, it's my two cents. Uh, I think we should probably wrap it up. We're at about an hour 40 here now, give or take, um, unless you have anything else you'd want to discuss, Mike. Nope. I'm good. All right. Well, thank you for listening and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You can follow us on the socials via at HTML, all the things on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Twitter at HTML, everything you can check us out on medium. You can check us out on GitHub and hopefully you can check us out right now at HTML, all the Remember we are on Patreon via patreon.com slash HTML, all the things give that a go. Check out the tiers. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform you're listening to this on, and we are signing off.